Today's reading is from Matthew 5, 38-42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let's pray. Father, we don't take um, days for granted. Thank you for um, this day and everything that it brings. Father, thank you that um, though the world seems um, somehow in disarray, that nothing takes you by surprise. Father, we love you and um, we just want to say that we relinquish control of this whole situation. Father, you are our refuge and our strength. So, Father, we pray that you would be um, glorified in a mighty way today. Father, thank you for our Cornerstone Church. And um, even though we're only able to meet virtually, Father, I just thank you for everyone um, that is a part of this body. Um, so, Father, we love you and we thank you and we give you all the praise and glory because we have so much to be grateful for. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, when I was in the fourth and fifth grade, the church where I attended growing up always did this annual kids performance, kid pageant thing. And I think I was a fourth or fifth grader and we did one called The Secret of My Success. The Secret of My Success. Um, I'm obviously like a really gifted performer you know, musically and theater and all that. Um, but I had the role of the wealthy executive businessman who dressed up as the homeless guy to play a big undercover boss kind of experiment on everybody and teach everybody a big lesson. And so uh, when it came to do the musical, they, they gave us this script with all the songs and the lyrics and a cassette tape. Some of you don't know what a cassette tape is. But we got all of these cassette tapes that people copied, and we listened to the songs, and we memorized the script. And uh, I really only had one line. I was like a secret character until the big reveal at the end. And I sang my one line, and then people just went bananas. Like it was just so powerful when I sang my one line that people went nuts. Uh, not really. It was really underwhelming. But um, I, I've never really done much uh, theater stage stuff other than preaching and leading music. I, but I, I've been fascinated with the idea of scripts for a long time. And not like scripts that you would be given if you were in doing a performance in a musical or a theater of some kind. But more like the kind of uh, social scripts, the informal, unwritten, relational and social scripts that all of us uh, follow in life. Uh, so they're like common scripts that uh, young people tend to inherit, uh, especially in some circles. So, so there, for many young adults, there's a script as you're early in high school that you need to do really well in high school, do really well on your standardized testing. Why? So you can get into a good school and so that you can get a good job and then you can get married and then you can have children. That is an informal, unwritten script that many people uh, just live by by default. What happens, however, is if life goes off script, if you, you know, blow it in college or you don't go to college, if you go to college but the economy is just tanking and you can't get a job or you lose a job or you get married and marriage is not all it was cracked up to be or you experience divorce 
or death. There can be a kind of disillusionment. I've, I've heard from a ton of 25-year-olds in our church who have followed this script to the letter. They get into the working world and there's a sense of disillusionment and disappointment. Like, I've been following the script and this is it? Like, this is what adulthood is all about? Just clocking in? It's a script that many people have, have followed. There are relational scripts that you follow with your family, especially when you go, if, if you're privileged to be able to go have a relationship with your family of origin. You go for like the Thanksgiving meal and you know the thing that your cousin is going to do that's going to quietly make everybody's blood boil. And you know like, okay, about 40 minutes into the meal, grandma or that uncle is going to make a political comment that everyone so wants to like bite at and they're trying to reel it back in until the one family member who just can't help themselves makes the passive-aggressive comment, and then people are quietly seething for the rest of the day. Uh, that never happens at my family table, of course, or yours for, sure, for certain, but other people's family tables. There are scripts that we follow with the role that we feel like we've been assigned. There are scripts that you follow with your spouse you tend, uh, or, or with good friends. You tend to fight in predictable ways. They do stimulus. You have predictable response. They have predictable uh, counter-response. And it goes on and on and on. And 24 hours later, you're apologizing for the thing that you apologize for all the time. Scripts. They can be helpful. They can be unhelpful. They can be true. They can be untrue. But they're usually informal unwritten. If you look out for them, though, and you pay attention to them, what are the ways in which I'm being tempted to go on autopilot in a conversation or in a major life decision? You find that there are often scripts hiding underneath. As, as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been doing for the last four months, now starting this, this fifth month, uh, we immediately get the sense that Jesus feels absolutely no obligation, or I would say he feels limited obligation to follow the script of rabbi-teacher in first century Judaism. There's a clear uh, sense in which he's in continuity, of course, with all that God has done in the past. But Jesus feels the liberty as the second person of the Trinity and the Son of God to reinterpret and re-expand for God's people in this, this new progressive revelation what God wants to do. He's changing the script with a lot of freedom. And it shows up immediately, this sense of like going in unexpected direction or choosing a different script when we read the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus begins what's called the Beatitudes, the blessings. And he announces God's blessings not on the most pious, but on the most worn down. Blessings not on the victors, but on the meek, those who restrain their strength, and on the mourners, the meek and not the dominant, those who are hungering for God from a place of purity and not just hungering for power and for wealth. He announces blessings on the merciful and not the merciless. And then he, begin, he begins to give these metaphors to describe what it is that he's up to in the world. He's kicking off a community that's going to stand out like light on a hilltop or it's going to be like salt in the earth. A group of people who in following him and in their very being in essence, in their behavior and in their rhythms, in their affections and their allegiances, demonstrate that they're following a different script. They're going a different direction than the prevailing wisdom and culture in the world. And we see it in the way that they preserve and, and tame their sexuality, the way that they honor other people. 
the way that they protect marriages, the way that they reject deceitful speech, as uh, my friend Andrew Arndt talked about last week, and they just practice uh, truth-telling, just saying the truth about themselves and about the world, letting their word be trustworthy. And it shows up perhaps most clearly in the text that Chris just read for us in how the community of disciples treats those who offend and affront them, who accost and insult, who harass and harangue them. And today we're looking at how Jesus flips the script in dealing with the people who irritate us and bother us and insult us, the people who wrong us. And he casts a completely different vision, gives us a different script for how the community of disciples are meant to live. So it'd be helpful as we work through the text, if you have a Bible, to keep it open to Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42. As Jesus begins his teaching in verse 38, he cites the script that most of the people of Israel would have in their mind with regard to those who wrong them or those who commit a crime against them. Uh, Verse 38 says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And here Jesus is not just citing prevailing logic. He's citing uh, the law given through Moses. It's in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. And it's guidance from God in how to deal with wrongdoing in the community. And so if, if guy A gouges out the eye of guy B, then it makes sense you're going to gouge out the eye of, of, of guy A. So there's equal punishment. Truthfully, in modern sensibilities, this sounds really gory. So if somebody chops off an arm, you chop off their arm. But in a, in a world, in, in the ancient Near East, this was actually fairly revolutionary. It was the introduction of the avoidance of cruel and unusual punishment. And it did two really positive things in the ancient Near East. This eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth um, instruction by God to Israel. Uh, The first thing it did was it checked wild revenge. Uh, Someone is not going to get a greater punishment than the crime that they dealt. And so in that sense, number two, it taught justice. There's equal punishment to, to fit the crime. It also goes against a kind of anti-mafia mob mentality, like, you punch me, I'll kill you. It, it, it minimizes all of that. The punishment is meant to fit the crime. Also worth noting, as we consider the context in which this was originally given, the law was given by Yahweh to the nation or the government of Israel. So the governance of, of a, 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 a nation, a, a country, Uh, But Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to this nation, to this people, but I say to you. Well, remember the context. Who's the you here? The you is the company of disciples, the people who've gathered around to hear from Jesus, the teacher. These these instructions that we're going to reread that Chris shared for us are addressed to individual disciples. What to do when the individual disciple in Jesus' hearing are slapped and sued and insulted. He's telling them how they ought to respond. And I, and I wanted to point out the context in which the, the Levitical law was given, because it was given in, in the context of national policy. And here Jesus is shifting to the policy for con, the conduct of individual disciples. Two very, very different situations and audiences. So Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. And then he gives this counterscript Uh, instruction, this teaching. He says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. 
Now, as we read that, maybe it was kind of one ear and out the other, but I want you to think about that. Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. Okay. You think about the evil people in our world. What does that instruction make you think about? How does that instruction make you feel? Do you immediately go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense? Or are you more like me? You think, honestly, it sounds like terrible advice. It honestly sounds like really dangerous advice. And I would say uh, people probably look for some kind of loophole right away. And and the two most common loopholes that we look for, uh, one would probably be like a home invasion scenario or a domestic abuse scenario. Uh, The other would be war. So we're thinking, Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. Is he saying that, like, if there's abuse going on at home, you should just take it? Or if they bomb us, our government should just, like, let it happen? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, first, as we already noted, Jesus is not necessarily advising national policy here. He's addressing the behavior of of individual disciples. But let's think about the home invasion scenario or the situation of abuse. When we read the phrase, do not resist an evil person, does this mean that Jesus would want a woman living with an abusive husband to stay and just take it? If there were children involved and children were being put in a position of of, of harm, in harm's way by staying in that home, is Jesus saying that's what should happen? Or if someone breaks into your home and the people that you love are vulnerable to some kind of attack, is Jesus saying, that's okay, I want you to just take it? No, absolutely not. And I'd say if you are in an abusive situation, if you're in an unhealthy situation, that is not okay and it is appropriate for you to seek a place of safety. If children in your home, or if you're aware of children being put in a position of, of uh, a lack of safety or vulnerability, you should prioritize protecting those children. Jesus is not saying you should just stay and take it. What we have here is a difficulty in translation. A better way of translating this phrase, not, uh, not do not resist an evil person, but rather don't try to get even with an evil person. Or, don't try to take revenge on an evil person. Don't ever try to pay back. Don't follow the typical script of tit for tat, getting even. And we can see why this is actually a better translation when we look at other places in the New Testament where New Testament authors, uh, 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 Paul and Peter, paraphrase Jesus' instruction here in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, if, someone, uh, if someone's done you wrong, do not repay that wrong. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, see that no one pays back wrong for wrong. And, then, and in 1 Peter, it says, do not pay back evil with evil. In the first scenario, it, it gives you the impressions, do not resist an evil person, that you should just stay and take it. That Jesus would be advising you to just let that abuse or violence to the vulnerable happen. And that is not the case. What we're talking here is about, is about revenge, is about getting even. It's about matching an evil action with another evil action. And Jesus says, avoid this. See that no one pays back wrong for wrong. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They hit you, you hit back. But I say to you, take yourself out of the business of revenge. Throw away the script of merely getting back at someone and offer a more creative response instead. 
And then Jesus shifts in the remaining uh, section of this little passage to giving four somewhat everyday examples of following a kingdom script and what it might look like in daily occurrences if you were to try to obey the teachings of Jesus to toward those people who slight you and wrong you. You can look at the second half of verse 39. He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. He doesn't say if somebody gouges out your eye, turn so they can gouge out your other eye. This is a less intense scenario than chopping off limbs and gouging out eyes. A slap. It's insulting. It's enraging. But it's significantly lesser than some more gross offenses. It says if, you, if they slap you on the right cheek, rather than fighting them and rather than taking flight from them, take instead a third way, which is actually a confronting approach. He says, stay there and do something completely unexpected. Turn the cheek. Or you could look in the next scenario. It says, if you're being sued for your shirt, um, the surprising thing, Jesus says, is you should let go of your shirt and your jacket as well, your cloak as well. The funny thing about this garment, uh, the funny thing about this little teaching here is that the, the garments Jesus described are probably the only thing that a first century man would be wearing in, when he goes out in public. A shirt that's closest to his body, functioning like kind of like indoor-outdoor underwear with a jacket over it. If they take your shirt and they take your cloak too, you are standing buck naked out in the world. Jesus is saying it is better to fight or it's better to be naked than to be in the middle of this litigious fight. Stay there and do something surprising, something unexpected. He said there's the next example, which was not uncommonly experienced by Jews in the first century who were in their country that was occupied by the Romans. The Romans would force the Jews at times to operate like mules and carry all of their stuff to them. And so if a Roman legionnaire came and said, hey, carry my stuff from A to B, Outdo them and carry it instead to see voluntarily. In each of these scenarios of, of uh, being slapped, of the clothing, of being forced to act like a mule and carry things for other people, uh, these everyday scenarios of being slighted or taken advantage of, Jesus invites the disciples to embody a spirit of poise, magnanimity, and paradox. Poise, magnanimity, and paradox. Here's what I mean by those terms. Poise is just this alert posture of staying on your toes and being ready to respond. Uh, it's in the New Testament, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks of you concerning the hope you've been given. It's an invitation to poise. I'm always on my toes not knowing how I'm going to be invited or given an opportunity to respond for the kingdom. It's poise. Uh, magnanimity, or some, if you describe someone as being magnanimous, it's this generous, gracious attitude toward rivals or toward people who are less powerful than yourself. So uh, I think about um, in the Proverbs, it talks about a king who overlooks an offense. There's wisdom for that king. They are being magnanimous. I wish that I were a more magnanimous parent. Uh, just like letting st like little stuff with my kids just slide. Jesus is encouraging the disciples to have poise, to be a magnanimous person. But then the third component is to be a paradoxical person, to behave paradoxically, which is acting in a way that is completely unexpected. We see poise and magnanimity 
and paradox in each of these first three examples. Rather than playing the game of revenge or just getting even, Christians find creative and unexpected ways to flip the script and to change the narrative. Why? Ultimately, it's because we know where the typical script of playing revenge leads, and it leads to this never-ending back and forth of escalating violence, whether it's verbal violence or the cold shoulder or actual violence. Continuing to play this game of back and forth violence following the script, we know where it leads. Jesus wants us to get out of this ping-pong game of revenge, to quit pinging when the other person pongs, and instead to quack, to do something completely unexpected that changes the narrative, changes the script, to act with poise and magnanimity and with paradox, to do something surprising. Jesus tells a story. There's a father. Father has two sons. One of the sons comes up to him and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance today. To our surprise, the father acquiesces. The son takes his money and he goes off to a far-off country and he blows all of it on prostitutes and wild living. And when he gets to the end of his trust fund and he's eating slop out of a pig trough, he's thinking, what on earth am I going to do? Well, I guess I could go back and try to get a job as like one of my dad's hired hands. And so he starts making the long way back home, practicing his I'm sorry speech. Meanwhile, dad, who's been waiting for him, had his chair right there looking into the distance, waiting for his son to come home, sees him. His heart is full of compassion. And what does he do? He runs and scolds him. How dare you come back to this house? Don't you know what you've done? Yeah, yeah, you'll be a slave for sure, and we'll see if you can work your way into trust. That is not the story that Jesus tells. His father, with a heart full of compassion, runs to his son, embraces him, puts a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, a robe around him, and says, hey, kill the fatted calf and start at the barbecue because we're throwing a party. My kid was dead to me, but now they're alive. They were lost, but now they're found. Jesus, in telling a story, demonstrating to the people the, what the heart of his father was like, tells the story of a father who is poised, who is magnanimous, and who acts with paradox. Jesus says we act like this because this is how our father has treated us. Emily and I were talking this week um, just on the theme of the sermon, and, and we love language too, and we were talking about these themes and the word Um, Emily pointed out how the word generous and the word generate have a common origin. And we're thinking about the word generous. A person who is generous uh, has a, a quality of generating or creating more of something. The father is generous toward his son. He gives them him the gift of a fresh start in his uh, in his like generous spirit. In his magnanimous spirit, his poised posture, his paradoxical behavior, he is generous and gives his son a new life. And this is what we do when we follow the teachings of Jesus. We don't respond with pong for ping. We don't respond tit for tat. But we act in a way that's completely unexpected. And acting with poise and magnanimity, Uh, With a generous spirit and paradoxically, the Father generates new life for the Son, and we have the opportunity to generate new life for other people. And this is where we just see the brilliance of Jesus. 
where Jesus is not only like righteous and holy and good and the Son of God, but he's also like the most brilliant human who has ever lived. Jesus knows that the script of playing revenge in big and small ways ultimately goes nowhere and actually costs us something of ourselves. It minimizes. It takes life. It makes less of us and others. It's the opposite of generous. And while we know this, we often don't know what to do when we've been wronged. And we have such a deeply ingrained sense of justice that when someone wrongs us, like, we know that should be dealt with. Like, we know. And kids, I mean, you hear the word fairness come up all the time with children. It's not fair. He got five chocolate chips and I got four. I mean, like, it's, we have this deep sense of, of justice. Getting even often feels right, but... For the Christian, I think that there are three things that enable us to suspend our immediate need for justice and that free us to respond more creatively. Three things that enable us to suspend our immediate need for justice and to respond creatively. The first one is the acknowledgement that justice belongs to God. That justice belongs to God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. In the end, all of us are going to stand before uh, the throne of grace, also the, also the judgment seat, and we're going to be held accountable to every foolish word uh, that we've said, uh, all the good that we withheld, the, the evil that we've inflicted in the world, the actions that we've taken. And we suspend revenge because we know that we are not going to be people who can dispense justice ultimately or perfectly. God is going to do it. And I would just say parenthetically, that's why I, as a Christian, like, can't support the death penalty. Because I'm, a, I'm not a person who can give life. I don't have the right to take that life away from anybody else. Judgment ultimately belongs to God. We, sus we suspend our desire for revenge because we know that justice belongs to God. This is the first thing that enables us to suspend revenge. Uh, the second thing is the acknowledgement that behind all human evil, there is an evil one. Behind all human evil, there is an evil one. Uh, Dale Bruner, a scholar I really like, said this. He said, The evil ones whom we encounter in daily life, people in our world who are evil and act in evil ways, are in a sense possessed by the evil one. So while we are rightly agitated by their wrong, we ought to have a heart and recognize that to an extent they are not entirely themselves. This is not letting them off the hook for their behavior. We're all ultimately responsible for our own behavior. But we have to remember there's a bigger picture story going on. Brunner continues, There is an evil one behind every evil. In interpersonal relations, we rightly get even with the devil by not trying to get even with evil people. We get even with the evil one by taking ourselves out of this back-and-forth game of returning evil for evil, wound for wound. Now, this recognition does not mean that we allow evil people all access into our life by any means, but it does mean at the very least we pray for their deliverance from evil, the evil that's like warped their hearts and made them behave in ways that are subhuman and wicked and destructive. We're going to talk about that more next week when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We go off script. We act with poise and magnanimity and paradox uh, when we don't return evil for evil because we recognize there's an evil one behind the evil behavior of others. The third thing that allows us to suspend our immediate need for justice 
is remembering the generosity of God toward us. So first, it it was justice belongs to God. Second, the recognition that behind every evil, there's an evil one. But thirdly, it's remembering God's posture of magnanimity toward us. This is Titus chapter 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But... When the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Because we remember that justice ultimately belongs to God. Because we remember that there is an evil one behind the evil behavior of people among us. And because we remember how God has acted toward us, we suspend our immediate desire for revenge and trust in the big picture that God will make all things right. Justice belongs to God. All human evil will be dealt with. So when we are wronged, we neither fight in a conventional way nor take to flight. We act with poise and magnanimity and paradox. We find a way by the power of the Holy Spirit to do something completely unexpected. We throw out the script, the ping-pong game of revenge that everyone else plays, and we follow a new and a more adventurous kingdom of God kind of script. Uh, Our staff has been reading together this book called Managing Leadership Anxiety by Steve Cuss. And in the book, Steve Cuss tells the story of his 12-year-old son who's on a competitive basketball team. And uh, the team is doing okay, but there's this one kid named William on the team who's just a ball hog. Every time he gets the ball, uh, like, he's going to keep it to himself. He's not going to pass it to anybody else. He's playing totally for himself. So what does Steve Cuss's son do? Well, naturally, if he has the ball, he's not passing the ball to William. And so what you have happen is instead of this team playing basketball, you end up having this group of people who are hating each other's guts, and they're playing what looks like basketball but is actually just a game of keep away. And so Steve is talking with his son and says, look, I think there's something that you can do that would change everything if you're willing to be the one who goes first as a change agent and does something that's a bit risky. He's like, okay, Dad, what should I do? So, okay, just trust me on this. It sounds crazy, but here's what I want you to do. The next six times you have a ball, I want you to immediately pass it to William the ball hog. It's like, are you serious? Yes. The next six times in a row that you touch the ball, I want you to pass it immediately to William. So the son goes to the next game, the next practice, and he does it. And it immediately changes things on this team without ever having to have a sit-down conversation. When Steve's son was unwilling to participate in this game of tit-for-tat, of continuing to perpetuate, keep away, but instead responded with generosity, with magnanimity, passing the ball to the person everyone most wanted to avoid, it disrupted the social script and caused the team to behave in new ways. And not just on the court, off the court, this behavior change had an effect on William, and William and Steve's son become friends. Now, Does it always work out like this? Definitely not. Uh, Sometimes it can make a situation way, way worse. Uh, There's a big difference between someone who's a ball hog on a basketball team and someone who's a sociopathic narcissist. Uh, These are very, very different situations. But the thing I want us to remember is that Jesus doesn't give us this instruction because he thinks it's the most practical and effective thing to do. 
He doesn't give it to us because he thinks this will magically lead other people to Christ. Uh, another scholar said, Jesus doesn't give prudential or evangelistic reasons for obeying his command. For example, it will work or it will convert people to Christianity. Perhaps rather often, obedience to his command will not work and will not convert. So what? He said, disciples obey Jesus for one reason only, because Jesus is Lord. I want to make one last comment about the final scenario that Jesus gives, and then I'm going to kind of wrap this all up. You guys have been great. Uh, verse 42 says this. It says, give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay, now pay attention. In the script, in the, the passage here, it did not say give exactly what everyone asks for when they ask it of you. It doesn't say like live in a carte blanche kind of way, that if they ask for your car, dang it, Jesus said I have to give it to them. It just says give to everyone who asks of you. Peter and John walk into the temple and the blind beggar, or the, the, the lame guy says, look, I need some silver or gold. Peter and John say, look, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give you. And they just so happen to give him the ability to walk in the name of Jesus Christ. It says, give to everyone who asks of you. Uh, an ask is a big deal. For a person to look you in the eyes and make an ask, I wonder how many times you're asked for stuff. Uh, my mind immediately went, as uh, you know, our facility is just so close to the interstate. I think about all the folks who sit at the interstate and they're holding up an ask. A sign that says, like, I'm, I'm hungry, I need a job, I need lodging. Anything helps, God bless. There's an ask of some kind. Um, what do you do in those moments? What do you do? Uh, personally, I'm uncomfortable. You know, I think about advice we get from folks like John 3.16 who say never give out money, and then I hear Jesus, and I think what on earth uh, should we do? Well, how can we find a way to creatively obey one way or another? What can we give to anyone who asks of us? So if I resolve that I'm not comfortable giving money, what, what can I give people in those situations? If on the way you know, to work or in a, in a regular, like, like driving around, you run into a situation where someone is asking for you something, how can you prepare for that moment? As you're walking out the door, can you grab an apple from the fridge or from the bowl on the counter and you just have it in case some, like, somebody walks up to your car and asks? Give to anyone who asks of you. Can you at the very least give eye contact? Can you give words of blessing? Can you give a smile? Can you give a comment about the weather? Can you give the gift of humanizing another person? It just says give to anyone who asks of you. I just bought this amazing uh, series of uh, commentaries on the Bible from early church fathers from the first five centuries of the church. And in, in, in commenting on this passage, there's an anonymous passage from a church father we don't know saying this. He said, all of these mandates in the passage we've just read, being slapped, being sued, walking the second mile, all of these mandates suit the character of a poor person. But who knocks out the tooth of the rich and powerful? Let the rich not knock out the tooth of the poor. Who tries to steal the tunic of the rich and the powerful? Let the rich not steal the tunic of the poor. Who presses the rich and powerful into service? Let not the rich press the poor into service. And this says this, and I think this is so insightful for our community. The rich man, therefore, cannot be tested or proven through physical suffering. The first three scenarios. No one will likely do him violence. Rather, however, he is tested and proved by generosity. 
for each of, the, each of us in the ways that we're offended and affronted and accosted and people ask, ask things of us, there's an invitation by the Spirit of God, the teaching of Jesus, to be people who behave paradoxically, who act with poise and magnanimity, who change the script. We're in this weird season of life. I wonder how we'll remember this year and the years to come, but we're in this unique season of life where many of us are trapped at home with our loved ones, and we're all testing the limits of how much we actually love our loved ones, and we're testing the limits of how much we like our liked ones, the people that, you know, we live with. But Jesus here is issuing us this challenge that can be, like, so difficult It would be difficult to obey this challenge when people that we love offend us. But Jesus is really upping the games and urging us to restrain our impulses and reorient our thinking and reframe our relationship with our unloveds and our unlikeds and the unknown people in our world who ask things of us. And as I was studying all of this, and, and maybe you're thinking this as well, I was thinking, man, sometimes it's really hard. I can barely behave this way toward the people I love the most. How could I do it with those who wrong me or those I don't know? Perhaps more than anything else in studying this passage all week, the thing that struck me was the recognition that Jesus thought we could obey this passage. Like, the whole Sermon on the Mount is really challenging, but as I was thinking about this one, Jesus dignified us by giving us a challenge he actually thought that we could obey. And as I kicked all of this around, and I think this is true of the Sermon on the Mount in general, as I wrestle with the Sermon on the Mount, I keep going back to John chapter 10 and John chapter 15. John chapter 10, where Jesus says, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have life. Have it to the full. And then five chapters later, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you're going to bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I was like, what does it mean to live life, like to have life to the full? What does it mean to be fruitful in the John 15 kind of sense? Is it not, at the least, the capability to live in the way that he's talking about right here? The fruitfulness might look more like, less like converts to Christianity, although I certainly hope it includes that, but it's like like the fruitfulness of the gifts of the Spirit. That in abiding in Jesus, we begin naturally living like Sermon on the Mount people, people who are uh, patient and loving and generous and kind and and have self-control. The the, the fruitfulness might actually look like a transformation of our our character and our, our being. Is Jesus not thinking that he could fill up our inner tank in such a way that actually enables us to live with poise and magnanimity and people who behave with paradox in the face of the everyday offenses and annoyance of life? Jesus seems to believe that in relationship with him, there's something that transforms our capacity. God has such endless resources to match the demands of life in the real world so much that he could empower us by the Holy Spirit to choose magnanimity over stinginess, freedom over slavery, generosity over scarcity, playfulness over seriousness, muchness over limitations, faith over fear, paradox over predictability, poise over precariousness, and even a kind of like natural internal effervescence over a deflated spirit. He's given us all we need through the Holy Spirit 
to live as Sermon on the Mount people who chunk the script of revenge, of tit for tat, of ping for pong, of returning evil with evil, and actually living in a way that tells the world there's another script available for us. And as I considered all of this, I came to this, this prayer, this ask of God, would you grow in me an inner muchness of being as I abide in you to enable me to live with poise and magnanimity and paradox? Would you grow in me an inner muchness of being, an inner generosity, a sense that there are rivers of living water flowing out of me and not just a cup that's half empty? Would you expand my own internal understanding of all you've given me in Christ and through the Holy Spirit so that I can live as a Sermon on the Mount Christian with poise, with magnanimity, and as a person of paradox? And wouldn't it be amazing if our whole community developed this kind of imagination where we're looking for opportunities to go off script We're on our toes and poised, just watching and waiting for these moments where we can be magnanimous in the name of Jesus, behave paradoxically in the name of Jesus, and in this way shine brightly like a city on a hill, be salt, adding flavor and texture, and preserving the world around us. God, would you expand and grow in us an inner muchness of being that we can live as people of the sermon, people who are poised, people who are magnanimous, people who are paradoxical. In 1 Peter, it said, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. What if it's true? Let's give it a go together. Let's pray. Lord, when your word goes out, it doesn't return void. It's never wasted. And so we entrust ourselves, our church, our lives to you. There are people... Lord, I know with specific situations in mind of those who've wronged them, give them the faith to believe it's possible to begin to obey. Not to give evil people full access to their lives, but even when put in vulnerable positions to at the very least to pray for their liberation from the evil one. Help us to be people who are on our toes and ready to flex, people who are not complacent, people who are not uh, just resting on our laurels of ways that we used to walk with you, but who are just ready. Expand our understanding of what you've given us through the Holy Spirit, that inner muchness of being that enables us to live a Sermon on the Mount Christians, a community shaped by the gospel through renewable benefits. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, may the Lord bless you, keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you and turn his face towards you and give you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Love y'all. Go in peace.